Section 12 of How the Other Half Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Shinnebear. How the Other Half Lives by Jacob Rees. Chapter 12 The Sweaters of Jewtown. Anything like an exhaustive discussion of the economical problem presented by the Tenth Ward is beset by difficulties that increase in precise proportion to the efforts put forth to remove them. Footnote. I refer to the Tenth Ward always as typical. The district embraced in the discussion really includes the Thirteenth Ward and, in a growing sense, large portions of the Seventh and contiguous wards as well. End footnote. I have too vivid a recollection of weary days and nights spent in those stewing tenements, trying to get to the bottom of the vexatious question, only to find myself in the end as far from the truth as at the beginning, asking with rising wrath Pilate's question, What is truth? to attempt to weary the reader by dragging him with me over that sterile and unprofitable ground. Nor are these pages the place for such a discussion. In it, let me confess it at once and have done with it, I should be like the blind leading the blind. Between the real and apparent poverty, the hidden hordes and the unhesitating mendacity of these people, where they conceive their interests to be concerned in one way or another, the reader and I would fall together into the ditch of doubt and conjecture in which I have found company before. The facts that lie on the surface indicate the causes as clearly as the nature of the trouble. In effect, both have been already stated. A friend of mine who manufactures cloth once boasted to me that nowadays on cheap clothing New York beats the world. To what, I asked, do you attribute it? To the cutter's long knife, footnote, an invention that cuts many garments at once where the scissors would cut only a few, end footnote, and the Polish Jew, he said. Which of the two has cut deepest into the workman's wages is not a doubtful question. Practically, the Jew has monopolized the business since the battle between East Broadway and Broadway ended in a complete victory for the East Side and cheap labor, and transferred it to the control of the trade in cheap clothing. Yet, not satisfied with having won the field, he strives as hotly with his own for the profit of half a cent as he fought with his Christian competitor for the dollar. If the victory is a barren one, the blame is his own. His price is not what he can get, but the lowest he can live for and underbid his neighbor. Just what that means we shall see. The manufacturer knows it and is not slow to take advantage of his knowledge. He makes him hungry for work by keeping it from him as long as possible, then drives the closest bargain he can with the sweater. Many harsh things have been said of the sweater that really apply to the system in which he is a necessary logical link. It can at least be said of him that he is no worse than the conditions that created him. The sweater is simply the middleman, the subcontractor, a workman like his fellows, perhaps with the single distinction from the rest, that he knows a little English, perhaps not even that, but with the accidental possession of two or three sewing machines, or of credit enough to hire them as his capital, who drums up work among the clothing houses. 
of workmen he can always get enough. Every shipload from German ports bring them to his door in droves clamoring for work. The sun sets upon the day of the arrival of many a Polish Jew, finding him at work in an east side tenement, treading the machine and learning the trade. Often there are two, sometimes three sets of sweaters on one job. They work with the rest when they are not drumming up trade, driving their hands as they drive their machine for all they are worth, and making a profit on their work, of course, though in most cases not nearly as extravagant a percentage, probably, as is often supposed. If it resolves itself into a margin of five or six cents, or even less, on a dozen pairs of boys' trousers, for instance, it is nevertheless enough to make the contractor with his thrifty instincts independent. The workman growls not at the hard labor or poor pay, but over the pennies another is coining out of his sweat, and on the first opportunity turns sweater himself, and takes his revenge by driving an even closer bargain than his rival tyrant, thus reducing his profits. The sweater knows well that the isolation of the workman in his helpless ignorance is his sure foundation, and he has done what he could, with merciless severity where he could, to smother every symptom of awakening intelligence in his slaves. In this effort to perpetuate his despotism, he has had the effectual assistance of his own system, and the sharp competition that keeps the men on starvation wages, of their constitutional greed that will not permit the sacrifice of temporary advantage, however slight, for permanent good, and above all, of the hungry hordes of immigrants to whom no argument appeals save the cry for bread. Within very recent times he has, however, been forced to partial surrender by the organization of the men to a considerable extent into trade unions, and by experiments in cooperation under intelligent leadership that presage the sweater's doom. But as long as the ignorant crowds continue to come, and to herd in these tenements, his grip can never be shaken off, and the supply across the seas is apparently inexhaustible. Every fresh persecution of the Russian or Polish Jew on his native soil starts greater hordes hitherward to confound economical problems and recruit the sweater's phalanx. The curse of bigotry and ignorance reaches halfway across the world to sow its bitter seed in fertile soil in the east side tenements. If the Jew himself was to blame for the resentment he aroused over there, he is amply punished. He gathers the first fruits of the harvest here. The bulk of the sweater's work is done in the tenements, which the law that regulates factory labor does not reach. To the factories themselves, that are taking the place of the rear tenements and rapidly growing numbers, letting in bigger day crowds than those the health officers banished. The tenement shops serve as a supplement through which the law is successfully evaded. Ten hours is the legal workday in the factories, and nine o'clock the closing hour at the latest. Forty-five minutes at least must be allowed for dinner, and children under sixteen must not be employed unless they can read and write English, none at all under fourteen. The very fact that such a law should stand on the statute book shows how desperate the plight of these people. 
but the tenement has defeated its benevolent purpose. In it, the child works unchallenged from the day he is old enough to pull a thread. There is no such thing as a dinner hour. Men and women eat while they work, and the day is lengthened at both ends far into the night. Factory hands take their work with them at the close of the lawful day to eke out their scanty earnings by working overtime at home. Little chance on this ground for the campaign of education that alone can bring the needed relief. Small wonder that there are whole settlements on this east side where English is practically an unknown tongue, though the people be both willing and anxious to learn. When shall we find time to learn? asked one of them of me once. I owe him the answer yet. Take the Second Avenue Elevated Railroad at Chatham Square and ride up half a mile through the Sweaters District. Every open window of the big tenements that stands like a continuous brick wall on both sides of the way gives you a glimpse of one of these shops as the train speeds by. Men and women bending over their machines or ironing clothes at the window half-naked. Proprieties do not count on the east side. Nothing counts that cannot be converted into hard cash. The road is like a big gangway through an endless workroom where vast multitudes are forever laboring. Morning, noon, and night, it makes no difference. The scene is always the same. At Ribbington Street, let us get off and continue our trip on foot. It is Sunday evening west of the Bowery. Here, under the rule of Mosaic Law, the week of work is under full headway, its first day far spent. The huckster's wagons are absent, or stand idle at the curb. The saloons admit the thirsty crowds through the side door labeled Family Entrance. A tin sign in a store window announces that a Sunday school gathers in stray children of the new dispensation, but beyond these things there is little to suggest the Christian Sabbath. Men stagger along the sidewalk groaning under heavy burdens of unsewn garments, or enormous black bags stuffed full of finished coats and trousers. Let us follow one to his home and see how Sunday passes in a Ludlow Street tenement. Up two flights of dark stairs, three, four, with new smells of cabbage, of onions, of frying fish on every landing, whirring sewing machines behind closed doors, betraying what goes on within, to the door that opens to admit the bundle and the man. A sweater this in a small way. Five men and a woman, two young girls, not fifteen, and a boy who says unasked that he is fifteen, and lies in saying it, are at the machines sewing knickerbockers, knee-pants, in the Ludlow Street dialect. The floor is littered ankle-deep with half-sewn garments. In the alcove, on a couch of many dozens of pants ready for the finisher, a bare-legged baby with pinched face is asleep. A fence of piled-up clothing keeps him from rolling off on the floor. The faces, hands, and arms to the elbows of everyone in the room are black with the color of the cloth on which they are working. The boy and the woman alone look up at our entrance. The girls shoot sidelong glances, but at a warning look from the man with the bundle, they tread their machines more energetically than ever. 
the men do not appear to be aware even of the presence of a stranger. They are learners, all of them, says the woman, who proves to be the wife of the boss, and have come over only a few weeks ago. She is disinclined to talk at first, but a few words in her own tongue from our guide, footnote, I was always accompanied on these tours of inquiry by one of their own people who knew of and sympathized with my mission. Without that precaution, my errand would have been fruitless. Even with him it was often nearly so. End footnote. Set her fears, whatever they are, at rest, and she grows almost talkative. The learners work for weeks' wages, she says. How much do they earn? She shrugs her shoulders with an expressive gesture. The workers themselves, asked in their own tongue, say indifferently, as though the question were of no interest, from two to five dollars. The children, there are four of them, are not old enough to work. The oldest is only six. They turn out one hundred and twenty dozen knee pants a week, for which the manufacturer pays seventy cents a dozen. Five cents a dozen is the clear profit, but her own and her husband's work brings the family earnings up to twenty-five dollars a week when they have work all the time but often half the time is put in looking for it. They work no longer than to nine o'clock at night from daybreak. There are ten machines in the room, six are hired at two dollars a month. For the two shabby, smoke-begrimed rooms, one somewhat larger than ordinary, they pay twenty dollars a month. She does not complain, though. Quote, times are not what they were, and it costs a good deal to live, close quote. Eight dollars a week for the family of six and two boarders. How do they do it? She laughs as she goes over the bill of fare at the silly question. Bread, fifteen cents a day. Of milk, two quarts a day at four cents a quart. One pound of meat for dinner at twelve cents. Butter, one pound a week at, quote, eight cents a quarter of a pound, close quote. Coffee, potatoes, and pickles complete the list. At the least calculation, probably, this sweater's family hoards up thirty dollars a month, and in a few years will own a tenement somewhere and profit by the example set by their landlord in rent-collecting. It is the way the savings of Jewtown are universally invested, and, with the natural talent of its people for commercial speculation, the investment is enormously profitable. On the next floor, in a dimly lighted room, with big red-hot stoves to keep the pressing irons ready for use, is a family of man, wife, three children, and a boarder. Knee pants are made there, too, of a still lower grade. Three cents and a half is all he clears, says the man, and lies probably out of at least two cents. The wife makes a dollar and a half finishing, the man about nine dollars at the machine. The boarder pays sixty-five cents a week. He is really only a lodger getting his meals outside. The rent is two dollars and twenty-five cents a week, cost of living five dollars. Every floor has at least two, sometimes four, such shops. Here is one with a young family for which life is bright with promise. Husband and wife work together. Just now the latter, a comely young woman, is eating her dinner of dry bread and green pickles. Pickles are favorite food in Jewtown. They are filling and keep the children from crying with hunger. Those who have stomachs like ostriches thrive in spite of them and grow strong. 
plain proof that they are good to eat. The rest, well, they die, says our guide dryly. No thought of untimely death comes to disturb this family with life all before it. In a few years the man will be a prosperous sweater. Already he employs an old man as ironer at three dollars a week, and a sweet-faced little Italian girl as a finisher at a dollar and a half. She is twelve, she says, and can neither read nor write, will probably never learn. How should she? The family clears from ten to eleven dollars a week in brisk times, more than half of which goes into the bank. A companion picture from across the hall. The man works on the machine for his sweater twelve hours a day, turning out three dozen knee pants, for which he receives forty-two cents a dozen. The finisher who works with him gets ten, and the ironer eight cents a dozen. Buttonholes are extra, at eight to ten cents a hundred. This operator has four children at his home in Stanton Street, none old enough to work, and a sick wife. His rent is twelve dollars a month, his wages for a hard week's work less than eight dollars. Such as he, with their consuming desire for money thus smothered, recruit the ranks of the anarchists, won over by the promise of a general divide, and an enlightened public sentiment turns up its nose at the vicious foreigner, for whose perverted notions there is no room in this land of plenty. Turning the corner into Hester Street, we stumble upon a nest of cloak-makers in their busy season. Six months of the year the cloak-maker is idle, or nearly so. Now is his harvest. Seventy-five cents a cloak, all complete, is the price in this shop. The cloak is of cheap plush, and might sell for eight or nine dollars over the store-counter. Seven dollars is the weekly wage of this man with wife and two children and nine dollars and a half rent to pay per month. A boarder pays about a third of it. There was a time when he made ten dollars a week and thought himself rich, but wages have come down fearfully in the last two years. Think of it. Come down to this. The other cloak-makers aver that they can make as much as twelve dollars a week when they are employed by taking their work home and sewing till midnight. One exhibits his account book with a Ludlow Street sweater. It shows that he and his partner, working on first-class garments for a Broadway house in the four busiest weeks of the season, made together from $15.15 to $19.20 a week by striving from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. That is to say, from $7.58 to $9.60 each. Footnote. The strike of the cloakmakers last summer that ended in victory raised their wages considerably, at least for the time being. End footnote. The sweater on this work probably made as much as fifty per cent, at least on their labor. Not far away is a factory in a rear yard where the factory inspector reports teams of tailors making men's coats at an average of twenty-seven cents a coat all complete except buttons and buttonholes. Turning back, we pass a towering double tenement in Ludlow Street, owned by a well-known Jewish liquor dealer and politician, a triple combination that bodes ill for his tenants. As a matter of fact, the cheapest apartment, three rear rooms on the sixth floor, only one of which deserves the name, 
is rented for $13 a month. Here is a reminder of the bend, a hallway turned into a shoemaker's shop. Two hallways side by side in adjoining tenements would be sinful waste in Jewtown, when one would do as well by knocking a hole in the wall. But this shoemaker knows a trick the Italian's ingenuity did not suggest. He has his flat as well as his shop there. A curtain hung back of his stool in the narrow passage half conceals his bed that fills it entirely from wall to wall. To get into it, he has to crawl over the floorboard, and he must come out the same way. Expedients more odd than this are born of the east side crowding. In one of the houses we left, the coal bin of a family on the fourth floor was on the roof of the adjoining tenement. A quarter of a ton of coal was being dumped there while we talked to the people. We have reached Broom Street. The hum of industry in this six-store tenement on the corner leaves no doubt of the aspect Sunday wears within it. One flight up, we knock at the nearest door. The grocer who keeps the store lives on the stoop, the first floor in east side parlance. In this room, a suspender maker sleeps and works with his family of wife and four children. For a wonder, there are no boarders. His wife and eighteen years old daughter share in the work, but the girl's eyes are giving out from the strain. Three months in the year, when work is very brisk, the family makes by unified efforts as high as fourteen and fifteen dollars a week. The other nine months, it averages from three to four dollars. The oldest boy, a young man, earns from four to six dollars in an Orchard Street factory when he has work. The rent is ten dollars a month for the room and a miserable little coop of a bedroom where the old folks sleep. The girl makes her bed on the lounge in the front room. The big boys and the children sleep on the floor. Coal at ten cents a small pail, meat at twelve cents a pound, one and a half pounds of butter a week at thirty-six cents, and a quarter of a pound of tea in the same space of time are items of their housekeeping account as given by the daughter. Milk at four and five cents a quart according to quality. The sanitary authorities know what that means, know how miserably inadequate is the fine of fifty or a hundred dollars for the murder done in cold blood by the wretches who poison the babes of these tenements with the stuff that is half water or swill. Their defense is that the demand is for cheap milk. Scarcely a wonder that this suspender maker will hardly be able to save up the dot for his daughter, without which she stands no chance of marrying in Jewtown, even with her face that would be pretty had it a healthier tinge. Up on the roof, three men are making boys' jackets at twenty cents apiece, of which the sewer takes eight, the ironer three, the finisher five cents, and the buttonhole maker two and a quarter, leaving a cent and three quarters to pay for the drumming up the fetching and bringing back of the goods. They bunk together in a room for which they pay eight dollars a month. All three are single here, that is, their wives are on the other side yet, waiting for them to earn enough to send for them. Their breakfast, eaten at the workbench, consists of a couple of rolls at a cent apiece, and a draft of water, milk when business has been very good, a squared meal at noon in a restaurant, and the morning meal over again at night. This square meal, that is the evidence of a very liberal disposition on the part of the consumer, 
is an affair of more than ordinary note. It may be justly called an institution. I know of a couple of restaurants at the lower end of Orchard Street that are favorite resorts for the Polish Jews, who remember the injunction that the ox that treadeth out the corn shall not be muzzled. Being neighbors, they are rivals, of course, and cutting under. When I was last there, one gave a dinner of soup, meat stew, bread, pie, pickles, and a schooner of beer for thirteen cents. The other charged fifteen cents for a similar dinner, but with two schooners of beer and a cigar or a cigarette as the extra inducement. The two cents had won the day, however, and the thirteen-cent restaurant did such a thriving business that it was about to spread out into the adjoining store to accommodate the crowds of customers. At this rate, the lodger of Jewtown can live like a lord, as he says himself, for twenty-five cents a day, including the price of his bed that ranges all the way from thirty to forty and fifty cents a week, and save money no matter what his earnings. He does it, too, so long as work is to be had at any price, and by the standard he sets up, Jewtown must allied. It has thousands upon thousands of lodgers who help to pay its extortionate rents. At night, there is scarce a room in all the district that has not one or more of them, some above half a score sleeping on cots or on the floor. It is idle to speak of privacy in these homes. The term carries no more meaning with it than would a lecture on social ethics to an audience of Hottentots. The picture is not overdrawn. In fact, in presenting the home life of these people, I have been at some pains to avoid the extreme of privation, taking the cases just as they came to hand on the safer middle ground of average earnings. Yet even the direst apparent poverty in Jewtown, unless dependent on absolute lack of work, would, were the truth be known, in nine cases out of ten, have a silver lining in the shape of a margin in bank. These are the economical conditions that enable my manufacturing friend to boast that New York can beat the world on cheap clothing. In support of his claim, he told me that a single Bowery firm last year sold 15,000 suits at $1.95 that averaged in cost one dollar twelve and a half cents with the material at fifteen cents a yard he said children's suits of assorted sizes can be sold at wholesale for seventy-five cents and boys cape overcoats at the same price they are the same conditions that have perplexed the committee of benevolent hebrews in charge of baron de hirsch's munificent gift of ten thousand dollars a month for the relief of the jewish poor in new york to find proper channels through which to pour this money so that it shall effect its purpose without pauperizing and without perpetuating the problem it is sought to solve by attracting still greater swarms is indeed no easy task. Colonization has not in the past been a success with these people. The great mass of them are too gregarious to take kindly to forming, and their strong commercial instinct hampers the experiment. To herd them in model tenements, though it relieved the physical suffering in a measure, would be to treat a symptom of the disease rather than strike at its root. Even if land could be got cheap enough where they gather to build on a sufficiently large scale to make the plan a success. Trade schools for manual training 
could hardly be made to reach the adults, who in addition would have to be supported for months while learning. For the young this device has proved most excellent. Under the wise management of the United Hebrew Charities, an organization that gathers to its work the best thought and effort of many of our most public-spirited citizens. One or all of these plans may be tried, probably will. I state but the misgivings as to the result of some of the practical minds that have busied themselves with the problem. Its keynote, evidently, is the ignorance of the immigrants. They must be taught the language of the country they have chosen as their home, as the first and most necessary step. Whatever may follow, that is essential, absolutely vital. That done, it may well be that the case, in its new aspect, will not be nearly so hard to deal with. Evening has worn into night as we take up our homeward journey through the streets. Now no longer silent, the thousands of lighted windows in the tenements glow like dull red eyes in a huge stone wall. From every door, multitudes of tired men and women pour forth for a half-hour's rest in the open air before sleep closes the eyes, weary with incessant working. Crowds of half-naked children tumble in the street and on the sidewalk, or doze fretfully on the stone steps. As we stop in front of a tenement to watch one of these groups, a dirty baby in a single brief garment, yet a sweet human little baby despite its dirt and tatters, tumbles off the lowest step, rolls over once, clutches my leg with unconscious grip, and goes to sleep on the flagstones, its curly head pillowed on my foot. End of section 12